Welcome to episode 15 of History Stories for My Son, a podcast where we remember that history is a story that should be shared with every generation. As always, I'll ask that if you like this podcast and would like to see it continue, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review, and share it with your friends. This time, I will tell you the story of Walt Disney, the man who made dreams come true. Walt Disney was born in 1901, but our story actually begins a few years earlier than that. The year is 1893. The place, Chicago. The event, the city is frantically preparing to open up the World Fair of 1893, the World Columbian Exposition. The City Fathers of Chicago and a team of America's greatest architects were determined to put together a fair the likes of which the world had never seen. The greatest fair of all time. Not merely a set of exhibits, but an entire city constructed specially for the occasion. A city of enormous, innovative buildings, some of the largest the world had ever seen, and a marvel of engineering that would become known as the Ferris Wheel after the engineer who designed it, all set amongst beautifully landscaped grounds, canals, and lagoons upon the banks of the Great Lake Michigan. The White City, as it became called because of the white stucco applied to the buildings, would become world-famous, introducing people not only to the latest in cutting-edge innovations, like moving walkways, the electric car, and the automated washing machine, but to a new vision of what a city could be. In a time where cities were filthy, disgusting, disorganized places, the White City, with its electric boats, clean water, and spotless grounds, all laid out with an organized, artistic purpose, was like stepping into another world. Fairgoers described it as a magical place. A magical kingdom, you might say. A dream made reality, gleaming in electric lights. Why am I telling you this in a story about Walt Disney? Because among the tens of thousands of men employed in constructing and maintaining the fair was a carpenter by the name of Elias Disney. For many years after that, he would tell his children, including the youngest of his four boys, Walt, about the magical city he helped to build. Picture young Walt as a child, listening to the stories of this amazing place, this magical city that existed only for a season, and wishing he'd been born a few years earlier so that he could have seen it for himself. Perhaps, and I'd like to think... Maybe one fine evening after hearing his daddy's stories, young Walt walked to a nearby window and happened to spot a shooting star. Perhaps he made a wish 
someday he would see a place like that, like his father's story, with his own eyes. Walt's childhood was fairly typical for America at the turn of the 20th century. His family was large by our modern standards, five children. Uh, He was the fourth of five, and they were relatively poor and moved around a lot. Walt was born in Chicago in 1901, but soon after that his father moved the family to a farm in rural Missouri, where he spent several years trying and failing as a farmer before moving the family to Kansas City, and then finally back to Chicago. Walt was a shy, diffident child who had a passion for art. He made his first dollar drawing the beloved horse of a retired doctor and his neighborhood. In high school, he drew cartoons for the school newspaper. And he was also very industrious, maintaining a paper route through most of his childhood, getting up at 4.30 every morning to deliver the morning paper and repeating the process for the evening edition after school. When the U.S. became involved in World War I, Walt tried to join the Army, but he was rejected because he was too young. He was able eventually to join the Red Cross as an ambulance driver and shipped off to Europe in 1918, where he saw a little action arriving as he did at the end of the war. And there he became known for the colorful cartoons he drew on the side of his ambulance and had some of his work published in the military magazine Stars and Stripes. Arriving back in post-war America in 1919, Walt returned to Kansas City, where he struggled for several years to make it as a commercial artist. It was during this time he developed his interest in animated cartoons and started to produce cartoon shorts that he called laughograms for distribution to local movie theaters. He even established his own small laughogram studio and hired several other artists and even produced a short mixed-medium film, part live-action, part animated, based on Alice's adventures in Wonderland. But the venture went bankrupt in 1923, and Walt made a fateful decision. He decided to move to Hollywood, which was not to the center of the cartoon industry at that time. At the time, New York was the center of the cartoon industry. But Walt chose Hollywood partly because his brother was out there recuperating from tuberculosis, and partly because he was fascinated with the movie industry growing in that place and had thoughts that maybe he could be a director or a producer. Despite the failure of Laughogram Studios, Walt still believed he could make something of himself as a cartoonist. He and his brother Roy, the brother was out there recuperating, founded the Disney Brothers Studios, which was later renamed the Walt Disney Company. This was at Roy's suggestion. Roy never liked the limelight and and felt that Walt, as the artistic side of the partnership, should be the face of the company. The company was not an instant success. Despite putting together an excellent team of animators and a number of popular shorts, both mixed medium and fully animated, the company struggled to pay its bills for the next five years. The most notable success Walt experienced during this time was on the personal side. 
1925, he hired an ink artist named Lillian Bounds. He fell instantly in love like, well, like in a Disney movie. And they married just a few months later. And they lived happily ever after. No, really, they did. They were happily married for more than 40 years until Walt's death. They had two daughters, one by birth and another by adoption, to whom Walt was a doting and overindulgent father. But on the business side, things were not so great at first. He created his most popular character to date, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. But he made a big mistake of not locking down intellectual property rights for himself. Those rights were owned by his distributor, Universal Pictures, and Disney was paid a fee for producing the cartoons. It wasn't enough, and he went to New York in 1928 in the hopes of negotiating a higher fee. Not only was his request rejected, but he was told his fees were being cut, and that if he refused to go along with it, then his distributor would just cut him out altogether and hire his animators out from under him. Now, if you're wondering why Disney would later be so fanatical about intellectual property rights, uh, this episode probably explains why. Disney refused the ultimatum and lost most of his animation staff. When Walt Disney boarded the train out of New York, headed back towards California, his prospects had never looked worse. And a lot of people in that situation would feel sorry for themselves. A lot of people would have wasted time and energy being mad at the distributor who mistreated him. A lot of people would have accepted failure and blamed others for it. But not Disney. Not the world's most famous optimist. His mind was elsewhere. If he'd lost Oswald then he needed to create something new, something people would relate to. Funny, yes, but not just a gag reel. A character with personality. A bit of a rogue, but also radiating goodness and optimism. He started sketching, and by the time he arrived back in California, he'd fleshed out a new character, a mouse called Mortimer. His wife thought that name was too pompous and persuaded him to change it to Mickey. In 1928, Disney and one of the few animators who remained loyal to him produced Steamboat Willie, starring Mickey Mouse, which was the world's first post-produced sound cartoon. The character was a hit, and Disney used Mickey's success to fund other cartoon ventures, including a series of cartoons set to music called The Silly Symphonies, and a number of other shorts adapting fairy tales. Disney felt the universal themes in fairy tales were compelling and would drive audience engagement in a way that cartoons never had before. Disney was a keen futurist, always interested in new technologies, new ways of doing things. And perhaps because of that, he was one of the first to recognize the potential of color. He signed a deal with Technicolor in 1932, giving him exclusive rights to their three-strip color process until 1935. His colorized short, Flowers and Trees, one of the Silly Symphonies series, won him his first Academy Award. 
1932. Eventually, Disney would win more Academy Awards than any other individual in history today. 23. That first one, Flowers and Trees, won for Best Short Subject Cartoon, a category that he won frequently, in fact, almost every year throughout the 1930s. The next year, 1933, Disney produced The Three Little Pigs, which was the most commercially successful short cartoon of all time to this day, and which, of course, he won another Academy Award for. Disney hired a slew of additional creators, increasing his staff to over 200. Unlike other animators of his time who often settled for formulaic comedy, he wanted to create emotionally gripping stories. And because of this, uh, he, his was the first cartoon studio to have a story department, which was separate from the animators. And with storyboard artists who would detail the plots of Disney productions in advance so they could be improved. Disney, despite or perhaps because of his tremendous success in creating animated shorts, became dissatisfied with the limitations of the short format. He wanted to tell longer, more complicated, uh, more compelling stories that could only be told in a feature-length film. People thought he was crazy. A feature-length animated film? Madness, they said. Cartoons were only good for short films. The films you showed before the feature. A cartoon couldn't be the feature. As word began to leak out of Disney Studios of his long-delayed, three-times-over-budget feature-length cartoon, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, all of the smarts said in the movie industry wrote Disney's professional obituary. Disney's folly, they called the film. It would be the end of Disney Studios. All the experts agreed. Snow White premiered in December of 1937 and became a sensation, praised by critics and audiences alike for its realistic animation. Walt had worked hard with his animators to make the movements more natural, even hiring actors to run through the entire script in live action so that the animators could better simulate real movement. It was also praised for being an emotionally gripping uh, fairy tale story. It went on to become the most successful motion picture of 1938. Not just the most successful cartoon, mind you, the most successful motion picture, period, and the highest-grossing sound film uh, up to that time. This success heralded what some have called the golden age of animation, when Disney produced many of the features that are still household names to this day. Fantasia, Pinocchio, Dumbo, to name a few. This all came to a screeching halt after the U.S. entered World War II in 1941. Like so many people in all walks of life, Disney got caught up in the war effort, and began turning out training and propaganda films for the U.S. military. Disney insisted on accepting no profit for these films and nearly bankrupt his studio as a result. Uh, one of those films, Der Führer's Face, featured Donald Duck having a nightmare of living in Nazi Germany, only to wake up at the end, much like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, uh, to appreciate how lucky he was to live in the United States of America. 
this short propaganda film won Disney another Academy Award. Disney also, always the futurist, became obsessed with the importance of air power in winning an Allied victory after he read a book called Victory Through Air Power by Alexander P. D. Saversky. Disney was so sure of its importance that despite the military's initial lack of interest, he self-financed the production of a film of the same name, Victory Through Air Power, which used animation to make the argument that bombers were essential to win a victory over the Axis powers. It was persuasive. After seeing the film, Churchill recommended it to Roosevelt, and the film influenced both men in their commitment to long-range bombing as part of the Allied war effort. After the war, Disney went back to making his feature-length animated films, including Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, and Peter Pan. He also started to branch into live action. He produced a series of popular nature films called True Life Adventures, which are widely considered to be the forerunner of the nature film industry. He won another Academy Award for one of these films, Seal Island, which was a documentary about an island of seals. Uh, he, uh, he said he wanted his films to be educational, but he didn't want to call them educational so that kids would actually watch them. He also made live-action feature films, including Treasure Island and Robin Hood and His Merry Men. Disney would continue to be active in filmmaking for the rest of his life, but it was in the early 1950s he started to shift his energies to another project, the project his father had planted the seeds of in those early stories about the Chicago World Fair. He began to wonder if he could build his own magical city incorporating the skills he'd learned as a filmmaker to create a fantasy people could walk through and experience in three dimensions. As word of his new project leaked out, people again thought Disney was crazy. This was Disney's new folly. Indeed, he had to distance the project from skittish Disney shareholders by self-financing it and creating a separate entity's WED Enterprises to run the project out of. He sent a team of creative types, many of them recruited from his film studio, whom he redubbed as Imagineers and sent them to every carnival ride, fair, and other amusement attraction in the country to pick out what worked and what didn't. But he didn't just want to create a better amusement park. He wanted to build a park around themes drawn from his filmmaking, Fantasyland, Tomorrowland, Frontierland, all surrounded by his idealized Main Street USA. Rather than just random roller coasters and amusement, each part of the park would be part of a story that the visitor experienced by walking through it with a unity of design and narrative. It would be the world's first true theme park. And perhaps the most successful example of cross-marketing in world history Disney inked a deal with ABC for a television variety show called Disneyland, uh, which uh, featured entertainments based on Disneyland's themes. For instance, one week you know, present a story based on Frontierland, uh, another week Tomorrowland, another week Fantasyland, and so on. For the Frontierland piece, 
He created the Davy Crockett miniseries, which became one of the biggest television hits of all time, uh, and uh, which also produced uh, the song The Ballad of Davy Crockett, which became one of the most repeated and listened to uh, songs in America at the time. For Tomorrowland, he created Man in Space in collaboration with rocket designer Werner von Braun. He made the case for a manned space program and uh, for many was their first introduction into the seemingly unbelievable prospect of human beings flying rockets into outer space. Uh, many of the pioneers of the U.S. space program cite Man in Space as an early inspiration. Disneyland opened July 17, 1955, in Anaheim, California. It attracted 3.6 million visitors in its very first year of operation. Its success led Walt to think even bigger, envisioning an entire city of the future, which he would call the experimental prototype community of tomorrow, Epcot. It wouldn't be just a bigger Disneyland, but rather an entire city constructed in collaboration with partners from the cutting edge of U.S. industry as a showcase of the latest technology and innovations in every field. The city was to be built around the latest concepts in urban planning with a central hub surrounded by spokes of transportation, leading first through commercial districts and apartments and then out to homes and schools. A new Disney theme park would be part of it, of course, but he envisioned a real city where people at the cutting edge of progress would actually live and work. Disney never got to see this last dream come to fruition. It's a shame because we'll never know what he would have built if he'd lived long enough. Sadly, he fell ill with lung cancer, brought on by a lifetime of smoking, and died in 1966, just 10 days after his 65th birthday. What we now know as Walt Disney World, a much scaled-down version of his vision, opened in 1971, uh, with Epcot Center opening in 1982 as a kind of permanent world fair. It may not have quite risen to the level he envisioned, but it would be hugely successful and lead to additional Disney parks in Paris, Tokyo, Hong Kong, and Shanghai. In 2018, the last year for which I was able to find statistics, Disney parks hosted nearly 160 million visitors. The Walt Disney Company also accounts for nearly 40% of the U.S. film industry, and has a market capitalization of well over $200 billion, making it one of the largest companies in the world. And as Walt Disney was fond of saying, remember folks, it all started with a mouse. But I would argue it actually started even earlier. With a child listening to a story from his father about a magical place he wanted to see so badly that he made his own.